Hey everyone, welcome to the Tailored Tech Talk podcast, a weekly look into the world of DevOps and tailored software solutions. We're your hosts, Ben Hayden and Chris Reynolds. And this week, we'll be discussing disaster recovery. Disaster recovery, also known as DR, is the process by which an organization anticipates and addresses technology-related disasters. There are several different DR strategies a company can implement, and we'll go over them as well as what makes up a disaster recovery plan and why it's important to have one. Yeah, I'm excited about this one. Um, I feel like disaster recovery gets you into so many areas that it, it just it makes it a very fun topic to talk about. Uh, but before we get into the details of disaster recovery plans, I feel like it's uh, I, it's it's a good time for an anecdote. When I was uh, very first entering the the tech world and in, in my very first job, uh, it was the mid '90s, and I worked for a group of credit unions. And one of our goals was to deploy a disaster recovery plan for the for the credit union technology centers that we were running. And um, it, w- one of the lessons that I learned was that the uh, the outcome of that practice was about five inches of paper in a three ring binder. Uh, which is, you know, not very actionable. Yeah, that's <laughs> a lot of reading when a disaster strikes. I always thought about like what you would do. Disaster strikes and you're like, well, I'm going to put on a cup of coffee <laughs> and uh, I'm going to sit down and I'm going to read, you know, 600 <laughs> pages that we wrote down. Um, it's just kind of silly. These were the early days of, of disaster recovery and, and you know, there, were no, there was no cloud computing at that point in time. Everybody had local data centers. So um, there, there was a lot that went in there and there were some action plans that were actually very good. And, uh, and luckily they were, you know, called out with sticky notes that we could pull to pull that section up really, really quickly. There you go. So it certainly wasn't, wasn't all bad, but, but it's a good example of a thing that, uh, I think you want to try to avoid at the end of the, d- the day, a disaster recovery plan that is, you know, five inches of paper that, that five inches of paper can't do anything for you. When a disaster recover, when a disaster event occurs, you can't walk up to a three ring binder and ask it to fix your problem for you. Right. So it is only there as a point of reference so that you actually can do the thing. And we'll get into this into a lot in a lot more detail as the, as the podcast goes on. But the primary way to know if you've done anything good is you have to test your disaster recovery plan. Yep. So we'll, it is the most critical step in the whole thing. And, and it's something that people, I think, tend to avoid because it is not a small endeavor. It's a no. thing you actually have to sit down and do. Uh, yeah. and, and usually that means these days, that means standing up your entire infrastructure usually in another geographic area uh, inside of, of uh, a system like AWS. So we'll dive into all that. Uh, Ben's actually done some of that not in the not-too-distant past. Uh, yep. So, uh, Ben, you want to walk us through um, next things here? Sure. So I think um, the first part that we'll go through is just some general um, terms uh, I don't think Chris and I have to convince you why having disaster recovery is important. Um, it is to ensure business continuity. Um, and a lot of times it's required by uh, an auditing or compliance body uh, for your company. Uh, just so your customers have um, uh, are, are can be confident that you will continue whenever something um, unexpected occurs. Uh, there are two terms that are often um, a part of your disaster recovery strategy um, and um, may show up in your uh, own plan. 
Uh, they are uh, recovery point objective and recovery time objective, uh, also known as RPO and RTO respectively. So a uh, RPO is what point in time do you want to recover to? Uh, meaning, do you want to uh, recover to a couple hours ago? Do you want it to um, recover to a few minutes ago? Or do you want it to be real time, um, never lost any, any data? RTO means uh, how long do you want it to take to actually recover? Um, so uh, do you want it to be done in a couple hours? Is it okay if it takes a couple hours? Okay, if it takes tens of minutes, um, that sort of thing. So there's really a, uh, I would think of it as a scale and there's actually an image that I'm going to uh, try to throw in the episode notes that uh, shows these recovery strategies in a, in a scale. And generally the, uh, the higher uh, RPO and RCO, um, the cheaper uh, your solutions can be, and the the lower you want it. Say you want real time switch over and real time um, data recovery. That's going to cost you a lot of money. Yep. Um, it's, it's also going to be really complicated. Um, there's going to be a lot of systems up and running. But uh, when I say expensive, you basically take your production and you times it by two. That's yeah. And, <laughs> that's and, what and a, li- and a little more. For the organization yeah. of the you know coordination of of all the pieces that that you know like prime state for uh, on the on the warmest end of the spectrum um, is active active called active active um, failover mm-hmm. and it is by far the most expensive thing and so I feel like one of the topics you and I always talk to our customers about whenever they they talk about disaster recovery and how we can implement disaster recovery for them is it goes to RPO, RTO almost immediately. I, I wish there were better acronym, acronyms because people confuse them. Right. There's literally one letter of difference between RPO and RTO. Right. But um, most companies start with this feeling that they have to have everything active, active, um, that they can't lose a single ounce of data. They can't, you know, no data points can get lost and they need to be able to recover in seconds. And then they see the price and they change their mind. Um, and it's not even the setup. I'm not even talking about the setup for, for a thing like that. I just mean the running costs, the the regular monthly running costs is just so high. Uh, so usually the first step is for people to just think about, you know, what, what are the effects on your business? If, if you can't get back up in a certain period of time, like that's, that's one of the first places that I go like, let's, first of all, let's just assume that you get to keep all the data. Let's say you don't lose any data points. Yep. Okay. But, but maybe it takes three hours for you to get back up. What does that do to your business? That's a, that's a pretty good exercise to go through. How much, how many dollars are lost in the process of, of that being down? Because the number of dollars that are lost can help inform how many dollars you want to spend keeping all of that running, you know, constantly in an active active yep. type setup or, or not. Um, and, and also, you know, I think this is the case, I think for most companies that the time frame also matters. Like if business goes down in the middle of the business day, that's different potentially than if business goes down at three o'clock in the morning or the, the, the site goes down at three o'clock in the morning. So there are, these are the kinds of parameters that you want to first think about the first set of things that come, come in your head. You know, if your AWS infrastructure were to go down or your technical infrastructure were to go down or whatever it is that that you're, you're working on, um, when, you know, what happens if it doesn't come back up for X period of time and you sort of lay that out in a graph. Okay. One hour, three hours, five hours, 10 hours, (laughs) 
24 hours. Right. You know, people start sweating. Yeah. They get to 24 hours. They're like, oh, my God, what would we yeah. do? Yep. And and usually it's um, not it, it's it's a disaster, right? Like, it's not something that you're expecting. Something has happened. Um, you know, the U.S. East one had has had many um, instances in the past at AWS where the region itself had catastrophic failures due to an engineer that ran a wrong command. Yep. Um, uh, one of the ones that I remember was a, uh, it was the underlying services that back up S3. They had a command that could delete um, certain nodes and he deleted too many, or the engineer, they deleted too many nodes and it just brought everything to its knees. I remember um, that. You one probably couldn't so watch well. Netflix that night because yep. of that. Um, but like there are cases that it that um it's out of your control. But one of those things like that thing lasted like a, almost a day. So you do need to decide what happens if I'm down for a day. Is that acceptable? Like is is it okay for my business just not to exist, or do you need to have that switch over? Um. So you know we we talk a lot about so far we've talked a lot about backup and restore, which is be your your coldest end of the spectrum as far as we've got backups in a different region. Um, and we don't have any services running just the data. Um, and what that means is once a disaster sh- strikes, you then need to go spin up all of the compute resources, all of the uh, DNS, um, all those entries in that other region and stand it all up. That takes a while. The data is usually stale, not not necessarily the um, having lost. You might have lost some data. Like it really depends. Like if. Um, it depends on how often you're doing your backups. If you don't make any changes by default and say you're using RDS, you have usually have just a daily snapshot. So there is a chance that you have lost that day's worth of data if you didn't set anything up in between. Um, then you have what is called like a pilot light. And that pilot light usually has more up-to-date data. Uh, you've done something to keep your data more, um, more up-to-date, like having done... Uh, cross bucket um, replication, or you're running um, some uh, MySQL replication to another region, something like that. But you're still not running any of your uh, other services, but your data is up to date. So once something happens, you spin up the compute resources to then go through and talk to that new uh, data source. Warm standby usually means uh, is like the next level that we're getting towards active active means that there's something running, but it's not on production scale yet so um it'd be something that would need to would um need to be scaled up quickly if uh there was an event um but it still costs less money than having like the exact same production site running in two different spots so that's kind of that that scale uh and process but even i think it's something that's important to know is like even on the backup and restore if you do nothing there is a chance that your rpo and rco could be towards 24 hours if you don't plan and and make adjustments accordingly um so the those are just the generic strategies and the generic terms of what disaster recovery looks like um i there are a ton of different aws services that we'll get into uh, as far as like what you could um set up and what you need to look at but i think there are two broader concepts first um that that would encompass any steps and really almost any cloud that you ever work on. Uh, Chris and I definitely talk mostly about AWS because that's a, um, our business experience, um, a majority of our business experience. 
Um, but the first one that we'll talk about is creating what's called runbooks. Um, and uh, a runbook roughly is a, here is this event, say you need to um, start the web server in a new region. Yeah. Super generic. Um, and here are your steps. And whatever those steps are, you write them. That's right. I mean, <laughs> uh, the, the, back in the that, day. That's a runbook. Back in the day, runbooks were literally books. And so, like, it was, you know, it, it was usually something that was typed up in Microsoft Word. It was printed into a three-ring yeah. binder. You pulled it out. You found the the thing you needed to do, which was, you know, this little divider in the in the three-ring binder. And it was like, right. step one, you know, uh, yeah. turn turn on your computer. Step two. Yeah, turn on monitor. <laughs> Log into the computer. So obviously these days, runbooks are no longer thought of in this sort of manual way. Although, you know, generally when they're documented, they are documented in some sort of electronic way where it's just been written. It can be in Markdown or it can be still a Word doc or a Google doc or whatever. Um, it's actually, I still am a big proponent of runbooks starting like this. I actually think starting with a manual set of steps uh, is not a bad thing. Um, similar to our conversation that we had in the last podcast, uh, where we talked about documentation, right. I think run books, uh, work really well as, uh, as video screencasts, because I think it communicates a lot more information and you can follow along just as easy and you can create them a lot faster. So I also, also think that run books work like this, but in the long run, um, we actually want these run books to be automated where uh, a run book could, um, potentially be something where you you click on a, a program of some kind and run it, or you, you run something either in the cloud or on your local machine or whatever. Sometimes runbooks um, have, are partially automated. So they've got portions of the runbook that would be automated and portions that you have to do manual stuff on. Maybe some of the manual things are just really hard to automate. And so you have to go a few manual steps and then you can go back and do the next set of automated steps. But in general, runbooks are definitely the way to go. They describe exhaustively how to get everything back up in, in whatever circumstance, running the web server, making sure we've got uh, an installed fully provisioned database, you know, those kinds of things. Um, that's how that runbook run, yeah, running, running the, the restore, restore command, command, anything that needs to be done, just that's what the runbooks need to do. I I think um, Chris was on the right, like there's like there is also like this concept now in runbooks. Um, Ansible is a good example of this, um, and really you could even abstract this to be something like Terraform or even a Bash script. Honestly, like a runbook could just definitely, be the definitely. script itself um, of like here here are the steps, run this step. Um, uh, maybe not bash, maybe more, more terraform or something, uh, more, uh, declarative, um, like ansible or, um, or terraform. But basically you're saying here are the steps that I'm going to take. And then it has the documentation built in with it. Um, and there, there are definitely, um, other tools that allow you to run these runbooks as well. Um, uh, what was the one that we used to use that ran runbooks? Run, run deck. Run, run deck. deck. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Run deck was like a, it's a nice tool web interface that, uh, is put on top of, you know, a bunch of different types of automations that you can do. I can't remember who made, do you remember who made it? Somebody? Uh, yeah. I feel like they got acquired. Only, um, yeah. I think you're right. If only Google was right at my fingertips, but, right. um, but it was a good tool and definitely one that I think I would recommend if, uh, you know, if you're just starting, um, again, that's run deck. I'm literally looking it up as we speak. 
Uh, who picked it up? Pager Duty. Pager Duty picked Pager up Duty. Them, uh, okay. Which that makes is. sense, right? Like it's a yeah, totally it logical thing. You go in and put you, those two together. Yep. You have buttons that you can do stuff on. Um, anyway, uh, we won't get into all the different tools that we can use because that would make this podcast run for <laughs> three yeah, and yeah. a half But it was, it, was a, it was a nice one. Was a good and one. The, the good thing about Rundeck or some sort of solution like that, uh, it is, I think, fairly uh, easy to put into a system that wasn't designed to have it in the first place. Right. Because it does use SSH and things like that. So a lot of uh, standardized tooling um, in that setup. Uh, so you could introduce it in an environment that uh, was not built for it, at least initially. Yeah. Um, so the the next most important overarching concept that I think that we need to talk about is what Chris referred to earlier. Um, it's game days for um, your actual DR activities. Uh, and game days are a very fun term. Um, usually the actual process feels a little less fun. Um, uh, but <laughs> it's, it's going through and actually running your uh, DR plan. Um, so this means assume us East one is down or assume your database has, um, underlying EC two instance has failed and your, um, your database is gone in your production environment. You need to go follow your run books to stand up, you know, the U S West two version. Um, and this process usually never works the first time. Yep. Um, that's kind of the that's kind of the idea. That is right. Um, so you'll take your take your run book or you'll take your plan. You're following the steps. You're like this doesn't work, or oh, they forgot that you actually have to go and log into the Zinc Zonk server <laughs> to get the new uh, authentication token to go through and actually run these commands. So that, that's the whole idea is that you have to practice it because once once an event actually has happened, we've all been there. The adrenaline's pumping. You're you were woken up at 3 a.m. The thing's down. Um, you're sitting here in your robe trying to follow the run book. So you need to have some muscle memory and you need to have some uh, uh, expectation that what the steps are there are actually going to work um, because that that is what um, the company has invested money in. Right. A lot of times, you know, the company has invested in making this DR plan in the first place. Uh, you just need to ensure that it continues to work. Um, and uh, I I do think that there are uh, in larger companies that um, actually invest in resiliency. Um, I think that there is a concept of actually having game days where they are fun. Um, it's, yeah. it's kind of a, an event where you can invest in your team and say, all right, team, today is all about testing the, the system and, and really building resiliency. So you put a team together, um, and, you know, we're out of COVID now. They can actually all meet together in some certain spot and just like focus on uh, building resiliency into the platform. I think it's I think you can make them more enjoyable than just go and sit and pro, uh, provision all this stuff in a room by yourself. I, I totally agree. I actually think that would be that, that you know, if if you have a bigger team and you have a couple of uh, a couple of people or, you know, even, you know, let's say five, ten uh, on the team that you would use to to implement the disaster recovery plan, getting them all in a single location and uh, letting them go through that process is really smart. One thing that you can also do and that I've I've heard about and seen done well is you can actually have it take place over a longer period than a day so that the first couple of days are actually not trying to be timed. 
the first couple days, you're just trying to do it once and find all the bugs in the in the run books, which is what you know what you're essentially doing with these game days. Correct them, and then on the final day, time it. How long does it really take? This, I like that. This gives you the RPO, RTO stuff really, really clean. And Ben, I think when you did this last, um, did you took it all the way to a um, uh, to like a disaster recovery DNS endpoint, right? Like DNS tends to be one of the last pieces because, yeah. like, on a game day, guess you know you don't really want to switch your live DNS over to uh, your disaster uh-huh. recovery thing. But you used a, just yeah. like a fake DNS, right? And then just got it. But like that was yeah, the, I, that I, was the point. So what what I did was I kind of made a third party uh, hosted zone that was not really used in production and pointed at the production resource. Yep. And then once I brought everything up, I took this third party URL and swapped it out. Perfect. Um, uh, so yeah, like you want to be able to follow everything as much as you can, but yeah, don't don't switch your production URL (laughs) at the end of your game day. Um, that, that'll get you in trouble. Um, so, uh, I, I really do like that idea of, uh, building some reps and then once you've got everything fully documented uh deleting that all and starting from scratch time again it. and time it um i do think that's a that's a pretty cool idea um i know that aws has some different concepts around game days now um i actually got to take place as a part of a different game day exercise once uh with a set of teams of engineers and it wasn't full-on dr uh sort of things but it was more of like a um, your system is being taxed, uh, like attacked or um, overloaded, and what do you do to like keep your system up and things like that? So, like, it is a resilience uh, sort of concept. Um, so, AWS game days do exist. That's that's pretty cool. Um, you could talk to your uh, AWS account rep about trying to set one of those up for your teams. Um, I don't think they're uh, self organized. I do think you have to work th- through your account rep, but it was a pretty cool concept. Um, so, I'll use that as a kind of a um, uh, transition into just the different AWS services that make up a part of these different scale, um, these different solutions across the scale. Um, the the first the first two that are really the backbone of every one of these solutions are AWS snapshots. Um, and I say just snapshots because all of the um, storage components inside of AWS have some form of snapshots. So. EBS would be your uh, EC2 backed instances or your Kubernetes backed instances. Uh, So that's like basically your hard drives. So um, making snapshots of your hard drives and then sending them to another region. Uh, So you'll want to have that done on some uh, regular occurrence. And same thing with uh, RDS snapshots. Um, Like I said earlier, um, they have daily snapshots. If you need to have them more often, um, you manage that. So, uh, AWS first came out with snapshots, snapshots existed. And then uh, someone came in and was like, gee, it would be really nice if we can schedule all of this stuff inside of AWS itself to generate and manage all these snapshots and move them across regions. So AWS said, got it, uh, and came up with AWS Backup. And AWS Backup is a real um, slick tool uh, that just manages uh, other AWS resources. You don't pay for it specifically. You just pay for the um, instances and storage that you are backing up. Uh, So uh, you can use it for all of the storage type instances, uh, storage type resources. 
Uh, you can use it for EC2 instances, but you uh, basically create a vault, uh, and um, the vault is what stores uh, your your cold backups. Um, you can then transition those to other regions, or in S3 case, you can um, transition them to uh, Glacier, which is like long time cold storage. So it's it's a um, very nice um, uh, tool to manage all those different life cycles of your backups. So AWS Backup really is kind of every solution should have AWS Backup and be backing up your most critical data. I think that's like a, an um, important point too that when we talk about that scale and, and again this this image uh, or this link to this to this article will be in the show notes. But when you go from the backup and restore to active active, even if you're active active, you've already kind of done all the steps along the way. So um, you, you, it's almost like a graduated scale. As you go, you've kind of done everything yeah. you know, behind it. Yep, yep, for sure. So once you, once you have snapshots and backup, um, your, your RTO, RPO should be at least, you know, probably within hours because um, uh, you've got stuff set up, it's backed up, but nothing's provisioned. It's all sitting in the vaults. You have no EC2 instances, things like that. So the next step would be um, to uh, kind of start spending a little bit more money. Um, and the idea here, uh, depending on what services you're using, um, most companies uh, that are in AWS have some form of AWS S3 bucket usage. Uh, S3 buckets uh, do offer cross-region replication, which is near instantaneous. Um, so uh, it is a, uh, probably their term is probably eventually consistent. Um, but the, the, the idea there is that your buckets are being live replicated to another region. Um, so that, that is really handy for document storage. Usually, um, the next step would be to be begin spending some money on, uh, AWS, um, read replicas and, uh, multi AZ, um, style solutions. Uh, so that, what that means is paying for your database twice. Is, is what that ends up looking like. I mean, the, uh, you add a multi-AZ, it goes up t- um, two times. Same thing for read replicas, but you're you're paying for if my availability zone, which we haven't talked about, every region has like three availability zones at least. Um, some, some of them have more, but these different AZs, if one AZ goes down, it will automatically fail over to the next AZ. Um, so that's, that's a single... Um, uh, Data center essentially is what AZ is. So um, single AZs can, I I have actually worked on databases that have went down because the um, server had like a fire issue inside of a data center or the the underlying EC2 instance that was back in an RDS had issues. Like there there are just, on a single AZ, you start seeing some real, it's a data center (laughs) style problems. where it's just it is not um, always always on, so you're spending a little bit more money more money in that pilot light sort of scenario. Um, if you're using Dynamo, they've got global tables which will replicate it across multiple regions. So what you're really focusing on that next step in the scale is that your your data is being more constantly um, replicated and basically ready to go at any moment's notice, but you don't have any compute or any networking stuff really set up yet. Um, but that should be quicker than having nothing running at all. The next one is going to be that warm standby. And the idea here is that you have all the data. Like Chris said, it's a graduated scale. You have all the data already ready to go, but you're also going to have some smaller version of your production site running at all times. 
Um, when I say small, it, you're, that's going to be dependent on your company's production scale. Small, small to you, whatever that means. But it's up there. Usually, what that means is it's close to just being a DNS switch, as 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 cheap as you can have. Um, just a failover uh, example.com uh, sitting there. Uh, you can um, do that. If you do have something like that, um, I do recommend uh, setting up auto scaling uh, based on some form or uh, of a alarm. So like on throughput. So if the uh, failover starts getting more and more bandwidth sent to it, it can automatically scale up uh, new instances or new pods or whatever your solution is to start keeping up with the new uh, influx in traffic. And then active active, we've already talked about it. You're using everything above and you just have them both running and maybe in multiple yep, regions. Maybe you're a global company and you have them in three or four different regions. And at full scale, right? Um, like at, but, at, at, in that case, you are literally able to just take, you know, action where it, it just runs in an entire, usually in an entirely different geographic region. Yeah. Um, and then all of these uh, tools, like I already mentioned uh, Terraform earlier around the, the run book, all of these um, different steps really do take it, uh, do very well with uh, infrastructure as code, um, especially for the compute and networking pieces that stuff that's not running uh, via AWS backup. Um, so CloudFormation or Terraform um, are really, really useful um, to actually run a backup and having an RTO that is not days. Yeah. Um, I feel like because engineers like we we're, we work on a lot of different stuff. It's really easy for us to forget what we did three it's years. Totally ago. true. I've also <laughs> to, I've, I've been production. surprised at how little I hear about infrastructure as code still. Um, just uh, just straight out of the industry, like just just to be clear uh, I, many of you who are listening to this podcast may know what infrastructure as code is but i'm going to just explain it super fast inside of aws when you set up infrastructure there's a there's a console you can go in and click on a bunch of buttons and type in a bunch of configuration and say go um, but if you think about that as your infrastructure gets bigger and bigger you would have to do that for your entire disaster recovery test game day, right? And that might take a long time. Right. Like we're talking about clicking a mouse and typing the right things uh, at the keyboard. That's silly. Infrastructure as code is code that runs all that stuff for you. Uh, it automatically sets up your infrastructure with just by changing a variable and saying, hey, instead of this running in Virginia, I want this to run in Ohio. And it runs inside of a, a different uh, geographic zone, for example. Um, that that is underutilized still substantially underutilized uh in 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 yep. uh, tech companies and so you know a lot of times um it is still expected that in order to to deploy something someone goes in and, and manually clicks on a bunch of buttons and says next 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 and configures things that's a that's a really really bad long-term practice and something you want to ultimately get away from uh if you can so yeah uh, infrastructure as code yeah. is a is a really important piece of disaster recovery yeah, and I think uh, we've we've done it. We've we've uh, crossed our threshold, so we won't uh, belabor the point. But like my kind of final final thought around some resiliency um, is I've talked about it a few times, but maybe maybe don't use uh, US East one. Uh, that's the default region inside AWS. Um, a lot of us out in the, out in the world have a lot of things running in US East one. Uh, but that is the region that AWS usually deploys um, newest services to. Um, it's kind of, it's just the one that gets the newest stuff first. 
Um, it also uh, has a few different pieces like CloudFront certificates have to run in US East 1. There's just some interesting stuff with the, even just the AWS infrastructure itself that still goes through, uh, through US East 1. So if you can decouple from that, use Ohio, which is US East 2, or Oregon, US East West 2, yep. um, just some of those um, to especially if it's like at all geographically close to you <laughs> like like that just that makes sense it's less less network traffic um uh you'll you'll be in for less surprises whenever you see twitter or whatever um blowing up about <laughs> aws being down and you'll be just fine uh, absolutely so. well i mean hopefully if you're listening to the podcast you you've just learned some stuff about disaster recovery it is hugely important. I'm sure we'll do lots of podcasts on disaster recovery as new tools come out and we discover some new uh, new things that we can we can share about disaster recovery. But it's a critical piece of of your uh, of your infrastructure. People don't think about it until it's too late, and that's a really bad idea. So the the main focus uh, that I want you to take away from this podcast is. If we gave you the task of running a game day scenario, set up your infrastructure in an entirely different geographical region, how long would it take you to do it? What would you run into? That is a really, really critical exercise uh, to be able to run within your organization to really know how well you handle disaster recovery. So that wraps it up for this week's Tailored Tech Talk podcast. Make sure and follow us on LinkedIn and Facebook or directly by subscribing to our mailing list. We'll be back next week. Have a good one.